Praise God. Well, it's so good to see everybody here this morning, and uh, you guys will be glad to know that uh, we're not doing any more of the book of 1 Corinthians today. We finished it up last week. <laughs> oh, that was a long one, huh? 29 weeks, but it was good, amen? Praise God. But today we're going to go ahead and, and get started on another series this week, and it's one that... Uh, is really dear to my heart, I think is super, super important. And uh, the, the series that we're going to be going through over the next several weeks is, is going to be called Reaching People for Jesus. How many know it's important that we reach people for Jesus? It's, you know, it's, we have been praying for growth in this church. Specifically, we've been praying that we would be, have 80 in attendance on a Sunday morning by the end of this year. And when Dr. Leon was down, he, he was talking, he was like, man, that's a great goal, but you guys are running out of time. And we have, what, two and a half months, less than two and a half months to be where we want to go. And, and to let you guys know, on average, we are 40 to 45 people, so we've got to kick it into gear if we want to, to meet that goal by the end of the year. And the way that we, we're going to do this, and that's the thing about faith, is that it demands action. That's the thing about faith is, is, you know, we can't just trust God for something and then just sit down and, and wait for angels to deliver it out of heaven, you know? If, if, you got, if, you're, if you're struggling in areas of your finances, you're trusting God for a new job, how many know you've got to put some applications out there if you want that to happen? <laughs> Chances are a new job is not going to land on your doorstep. You know, if you're trusting God in any area of your life, you, get, you know, if you're trusting God that you want to lose a, bit, a little bit of weight, you've got to stop eating Twinkies as your only food source. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's something that we have to do. I know this personally. The, the Twinkies had to stop. <laughs> really just food had to stop. You know, that's the problem with food. Thank you. 25 pounds down. So. But that's the thing about food is like, there's a lot of stuff in my life that I had to quit. And the, the thing about that stuff, drinking and drugs and smoking, is you can just quit. Turns out you have to eat <laughs> at some point. So you can't just quit eating cold turkey, which is what I think makes it more difficult. But that's not even what I'm preaching about. Why are you guys getting me off topic? <laughs> We're talking about today, the first part of our series on, on, on reaching people for Jesus is about the gospel. We're going to be talking about sharing the gospel actually over the next couple weeks. But the thing about sharing the gospel, if we want to share the gospel, we actually have to know what the gospel is. And the problem is, is many of us don't actually know what the gospel is. I don't mean here at this church, we all know. You guys got a good teacher. But Christians in general, we, we, we don't know what the gospel is. And I know this because I look around and I see what's being portrayed as the gospel. Many times it's misrepresented. But the gospel is important. Did you know that the, the word gospel is found 120 times in the English Standard Translation of the Bible, which is the one that I teach from? The New American Standard, it's found 99 times. It's tra uh, translated to the gospel. And the word that they, they use in the, in the Greek New Testament gospel is a translation of the Greek noun evangelion. And that occurs 76 times in the New Testament. And that means good news. And the verb evangelizo occurs 54 times, and that means to bring or announce good news. And both words are derived from the noun angelos, which is messenger. So in classical Greek, the evangelos was the one who brought a message of victory or political or personal news that caused great joy. 
In addition, evangelizomai is the middle voice form of the verb. It means to speak as a messenger of gladness to proclaim good news. And then the noun evangelion now has become a technical term for the message of victory. Anybody notice a theme in that? Good news, victory, it's an announcement. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. And the gospel is so important to us as Christians. And it's super important that we don't misrepresent what the gospel is as well. And unfortunately, we see that all the time. And it's actually much easier to misrepresent than you think. Now, I went to the University of Arizona for a little while. And uh, there was always a guy out on the mall. He would be with his megaphone. And he would just be yelling at all of us college students, telling us that we're going to hell and, you know, that the, the things that, you know, God hates these kinds and kinds of people and, and all of this stuff. And uh, it used to frustrate me. But even back then, I really wasn't, you know, I, I, I believed in God. I really wasn't walking in the life of a Christian. But even back then, it made me mad because I'm like, who wants to be a part of that? Who wants to be a part of people that act like that? And all I could think was, the gospel means good news. I haven't heard one bit of good news come out of your mouth yet. It's all been terrible news. And then we see all the stuff that's happening around us. And, and you know, all the, the, these tragedies that are happening. And people are out there saying it's God punishing us or God doing these things. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like a very good God. That doesn't sound like good news. It sounds like awful stuff. And then the truth is, is that works or the idea that you have to perform or achieve something to be right with God is preached and pushed so often that a young Christian would be forgiven for believing that that's what's required for salvation. Because we misrepresent the gospel so often. And this is what Paul said about this in Galatians 1, 6-8. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You know, having the gospel ministered and shared just as it's shared in Scripture is an important thing. And that's what I want to talk about today is what is the gospel? Because one of the things that I'm going to challenge you guys, church, over the next well, really forever, but focused on at the end of the year as we're trying to, to, to meet that goal of 80 people is that, that, you know, one, the pastor can't do everything. It is not the pastor's job to, to share the gospel with your friends. It's your job. We're all called to make disciples. We're all called to share the gospel. All, God, all called to tell people about the love of Jesus Christ. And if we want to grow as a church, we're going to have to start doing that. We're going to have to start stepping out. You saw that the little, the little bumper before the video started had some questions on there, like, why should I even care? Is it my responsibility? What even is the gospel? Those are the things that I want to answer over this series. And, and spoiler, it is your responsibility. Spoiler, you should care. And spoiler it's not that difficult really which is easy to say because i know because i get just as nervous and afraid as everybody else but we have to make choices in our lives to serve god even when it seems like it's going to be tough or hard but in order to do that in order to share with people we need to even know what we're we're sharing in the first place and truthfully if you're just learning if you're young in this stuff 
that's fine. Just invite them to church. Get them here. I'll tell them about it. But we have to, if we want to grow as a church, if we want to be successful, if we want to reach this community and do the things in this community that we want to do, we have to grow. And, and we have to have more people. We have to have more resources so we can make an impact in this community. Amen? So let's go ahead and take a look. What is the gospel? That's the first step before sharing the gospel is knowing what is the gospel. So in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, this is Paul, and you guys should remember this. This wasn't that many weeks ago. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Most of this is the, the gospel in a nutshell. So what are the, some of the key points of the gospel? One is that Jesus lived. How many know that for the gospel to, to be real, we have to believe that Jesus lived. And he lived a sinless life. And then he died for the forgiveness of our sins. And we see that we know he lived because that's not actually not contested at all. I mean, Jesus being a real person, uh, secular, non-secular scholars are like, they all agree that he lived. And we know that he died because he was buried, right? You don't bury people that are alive, at least not if you're not sick and twisted and you don't want to be in some crime drama TV show. Apparently that happens all the time if you're in a TV show. But then we see that he died, but that's not where it stopped, right? Because he rose again. And this is, this is important because this is so that we could have a brand new life, so we're not the same as we used to be. And the evidence of this fact was that he was seen by the apostles, 500 plus disciples, and then Paul. That's what he says here. One, we know that, that Christ lived, he died for our sins, he was buried, which proved that he was dead, he rose again, and then he appeared to Cephas, the 12, more than 500 brothers. And then the, the great thing about this is and the great thing actually about the writers of the scripture is they, they didn't try to doctor things up. They didn't try to make excuses. You know, if you think about when this letter was written, if this wasn't true, some of the 500 people would have been like, yeah, I was there. That's not what happened. But he says, no, these people are still alive. If you don't believe me, ask them. And he says, and last of all, to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And then the final point that we're going to talk about today of what salvation is, is the, the, one of the most important points, is that it's a gift. I want you to know that there's nothing that you can do to earn salvation. There's nothing that you can do to, to be good enough. It's just a free gift that it's received. And this is, you know, most of you guys have been saved. We're like, yeah, we already know this stuff, Pastor Wayne. What you need to know is know this stuff enough that you can share it with others. When someone says, but how can, how can God love me? How can God save me? Does he know of the things that I've done? And you can say, but it doesn't, has nothing to do with that. It's just a free gift. You just receive it. So I think one of the important things that we have to come to grips with, and this is actually some of the things I think that many Christians have a hard time with, and the reason I think they have a hard time with this is because we hear stuff like, I don't want to, to push my faith onto somebody else. Or, I, you know, I want my kids to make their own decision. Which blows my mind 
Because if you believe what you say you believe, and you're like, oh, I want them to make their own decision, you're, that's crazy. If you believe what you believe, that you say you believe, you'd be doing everything in your power that everyone would receive the gospel. One of my favorite stories from, uh, uh, I think it's Penn. Penn's the big guy of the, of the magicians, Penn and Teller. One of my favorite things is he, he posted this video online. I actually appreciate that he did it because he's a, he's a devout atheist. You know, he's come out many times and, and he's a very devout atheist. And uh, he was at a show. And after the show, uh, a guy came up to him and said, hey, I know you're an atheist, but I just want you to know that God loves you. I have this Bible here for you. And I want you to know that, that God loves you even if you don't believe in him and, and salvation is available for you. And, and anyway, he, he goes home and he, he does a little kind of self-blog YouTube video and he's looking at the Bible and says, you know, I want to share this story about this man that came up to me and offered me this Bible. He says, and this is what he says. He says, there's no God. I know there's no God. But this man believes there is one. And he really believes that if I don't receive his God, then I'm going to hell. And he's like, I don't agree with this guy, but I appreciate that he cared about me enough that he would still try to share this with me. That he cared about me enough that, that he wanted this for me. Because this is what he believes. And he says, and if you believe this, what kind of a person do you have to be to not share this with others? And if you think about it, that's true. I mean, if we believe what we say we believe, that if you are not saved, if you're not given a brand new life, that you will spend eternity in hell, what kind of a person do you have to be to not share that with others? Basically, not being willing to share that with others is basically saying that's where I want you to be. I mean, what kind of people do we have to be to, to have that line of thinking? And I think the reason we get caught up in that is we kind of get wrapped up in this idea that religion is kind of a good thing, right? The gospel is a good thing. Christianity is a good thing. But we really don't have a, a grasp of what it means to not be saved. Because if we did, our hearts would hurt uncontrollably for the people around us, for our friends, for our family members, for our children. It, they would break. And we would do everything in our power to share the gospel with them. And here's the deal. There is a need for the gospel. The ultimate truth is this, that we're sinners. When you're born, you are not right with God. And this is not a new thing. This is not, I mean, this is, uh, and it's not even just a, a Bible thing. This reality has been known since the beginning. I mean, nobody has to be told when they're doing something wrong. We have an internal conscience Unless you spend a long time trying to, to dull that down. We know when we've messed up. We know that there's things that have to be atoned for. And there's a real need for the gospel because just as we yearn for something, even though we might not have known what it was, and if you think I'm crazy for that, look at what people are looking for satisfaction. They're looking for fulfillment in. You know, they're looking in the, the, the party life, drugs, sex, rock and roll, the whole thing. They're out there looking for fulfillment in something. And they're not finding it anywhere. Because if they found fulfillment, how many know you wouldn't have to keep going back to it day after day, looking for the next high, looking for the next thrill, looking for the next something that's going to make you complete. And it makes you feel good for a little bit. And you're like, this is it. This is great. And then a few days later, you're looking for something else. And the truth is, like I said, most people don't need to be told that they need to be, that they're not right with God. We know that intrinsically. We know that there's something not right. We know there's something missing. And this scripture here is, is not the only one 
In Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Does it say some of the people are okay? A few people got it down? No, it's no one is righteous on their own. And it's not the only, Romans 3.23 says, For all have fallen, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And the truth is, we all know that, and we don't even have to look at other people. It's easy to look at other people because it's, it's, it feels much better for ourselves when we point out other people's failures than our own. But the truth is, all you got to do is look inward for a few minutes, and it won't take long to realize that we have issues, that we have problems. And Stephen Curtis Chapman said this, he said, In the gospel, we discover we are far worse off than we thought and far more loved than we ever dreamed. Because you see, there's this, without Jesus, there's this massive chasm between us and God, and there's no way to get across it. There's no way to be in fellowship with him. There's no way to, to, to make it across, except for by the cross. The illustration that I love seeing is, is the man standing on one side and God on another, and there's a giant chasm in between them. And there's no way for him to get across until we lay the cross of Jesus across it. And he's able to walk across it like a bridge. And that's real for us because to get right with God has nothing to do with how we live or how we perform because we can never perform good enough. But instead, it's about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And what I'm so thankful for is, is that God doesn't love us for what we've done but he loves us in spite of what we've done. That's good news. Because I've done stupid a lot. And I know you guys have as well, because I'm not special. I'm not unique. Or rather, I'm unique just like everybody else. We're all the same. We all do dumb things. And as a result, we do need restoration. We do need peace. And we do need to be made whole. And without Jesus, we are in a bad kind of way. We are in a pit of despair. We are going to spend eternity without God in hell if we don't receive the free gift of life from Jesus Christ. That's just, that's just the truth. But that's not the gospel. Now, to share the gospel with passion and believing, and we have to understand that there's a need. But that's not the gospel. That's what the guy on the mall at the, at the U of A used to preach, that everything, you know, nothing's good, you're, you're horrible, you're awful. But the truth is, is the gospel says that, recognizes that that's the reality, but says, I have something for you. The gospel says that, no, you are good enough. The gospel says, no, you can be victorious. The gospel says, no, you can be made righteous. You can be made holy. You can be made perfect. But not of your own doing, but because of what he's done. Amen? We're never going to get done. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess he is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The next important part about the gospel is we need to understand that Jesus really did live. And this verse describes kind of the works of Jesus in a nutshell. One, it says that he was manifested in the flesh. That's just that he was alive, right? Jesus came down, he put aside deity, he became a man for us. He lived, like I said earlier, historians, scholars, nobody argues the fact that Jesus lived. 
The problem that people have is not with Jesus lived, it's who he says he was. The people, it's not about was he alive, did he exist? Nobody argues that. The question is, was he really God? Was he really the Son of God? Was he really our Savior? Or was he some lunatic just spouting stuff on the, on the corner of a street? And really, those are the, the, the options that he's given us. You know, a lot of people say, oh, no, he was, he was a prophet or he was just a good man. That was never an option to be, to be taken. Him just being a good man is not even, can't even be on the table. And someone once described it well. He said the three L's. Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. That's a, a good man, a good person, a prophet was never on the table because Jesus claimed to be the, the Son of God. Jesus claimed to be God. That's actually, if you want to know, that's why they killed him, because he claimed to be God. And that was the main point of contestation. Was he just a man? Was he a prophet? Was he crazy? Well, I can tell you this. He could have been a liar, right? That's, that's potential. He could have been lying about who he says he was. But if you look at the one in the, in the, the, the Bible, we obviously see that he's not a liar. But the, the reality is if you go back and look at secular writings, secular historians, nobody ever claimed that Jesus was a liar. That's never, that never comes up. You can read about Jesus. You can read about what he did. But no one ever says he was a dishonest man or he was a liar. So I think all the evidence that we have today can rule that one out. The next one is, is he was bonkers. He was a lunatic. And the same thing. Nobody ever talked about Jesus like he was crazy. Nobody ever talked about New Testament in the Bible, biblical writings, or secular writings. Nobody ever considers that. So if he's not a liar and he's not crazy, the only other option is that he is Lord. And then it says he was vindicated by the Spirit. What's that mean? That means that he rose from the dead. Basically, the Spirit testified that Jesus was who he says he was by raising him from the dead. And that's how we can know Jesus, who he, his, who he said he was, is because he did rise. And there were many people that wanted to contest that, and, but the thing about it is, is all they would have had to have done was produce the body of Jesus Christ to destroy everything. And I don't have time to go into it as much as I would like to, but there's plenty of other physical evidence that shows that, that there's, there's no way that it was faked or that he was dead or he just swooned or that somebody stole his body. And if you, if you ever want to know about that stuff, I'd love to, to talk to you about the historical evidence that, that says that there's no way none of that stuff could have happened. He rose by the dead, rose from the dead. And it says he was seen by angels because he was exalted above all. Hebrews 1.6 says, and again, when he brings the first one of the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And he was proclaimed among the nations, first by the apostles and the disciples, and then by us, the church today. Or at least we should be. That's what this next few weeks is about, right? And then he was believed on in the world. This is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. In Matthew 16, 18, it says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You remember that right before that, Jesus said, Peter, who do you say I am? And he says, you are Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, or the Christ, the Son of God. And I think many people get this next part wrong because it says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Many people think that he says Peter's the rock that he's building his church on. But it's not. Jesus, being the Son of God, being the Christ, is what the church is built on. Believing, saying, knowing who he was, believing that he was the Son of God, that he was the Christ. That belief is what 
the rock is that the church is built on. Belief on Jesus. He's believed on in the world. And then he was taken up in glory. And this is when he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Now it's, it's, it's hard to understand this in today's day and age because this is a, a um, not commonly practiced practice. <laughs> you don't sit down until the work's done, right? Today's day and age with, with uh, uh, the work ethic of many, it's not the way we think anymore. But there was a time when you didn't sit down until the work was done. You worked until it was done. And we find in the scriptures that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why did he sit down? Because the work was done. In Hebrews 4.15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the next thing we have to understand. Jesus lived a sinless life. And we think, well, why is this important? Why do we have to understand this? Do you know that the only way that we could be reconciled to a holy and perfect God is with a holy and perfect offering? And why did it have to be Jesus? Because we already talked about earlier that Jesus was God. He was 100% man and 100% God. If you're confused about that or have questions about that, once again, shoot me an email, give me a call. I'll be glad to go through all the scriptures that points out evidence to that as well. But the reason why that's important is because if he was just a man and he lived a perfect and sinless life, his sacrifice would be worth the life of one. But being that he was God and he lived a sinless life, his sacrifice was for all mankind. Amen? It was able to pay the penalty for the sin that we have. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was our perfect sacrifice to make us whole. And he had to live without sin to do that. And the great part about this one, too, is I love is it says that, that Jesus understands our weaknesses. Anybody ever struggle in something and, and you just feel like you're the only one struggling with it? The funny thing is, is we all know that we're not the only one struggling, but somehow we feel like we're the only one. Well, not only do other people struggle with the same things, but the Scripture says here that Jesus is able to sympathize with, with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way as we are. Jesus gets it when you're struggling in an area. And he extends grace to you if you're failing. And get back up. Always get back up. You don't have, the only time you fail permanently is if you stay in that failed state. Get back up. And I love the difference between Jesus and all of us is it says that he was tempted in every respect. That means he's faced the temptation of every man that's ever lived. And the good news is, is that he resisted that temptation. Why is that good news? You're like, well, that's great. Jesus did it. I'm not Jesus. Well, you got his spirit living inside of you. You've been made a new creation with him inside of you. That means that if he did it, you can do it. Amen? You can live without sin. Jesus gets it. And we can draw near to that throne of grace because he understands and he doesn't respond with judgment and condemnation, but instead responds with grace and mercy. Amen? 
In Hebrews 7, 27, he says he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. The next thing we need to understand is that Jesus' sacrifice for, all, for us was once and for all. It was a done deal. There's not more sacrifices that are needed. There's not more animal sacrifices that are needed. Jesus doesn't go back to the cross every time you mess up. He died once and for all to cover all sins. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor Wayne, you mean even my future sins that haven't happened yet? Well, just to answer that question is, when you got saved and you were born again, when did, did Jesus die for your sins right then or had he already been dead the whole time? All of our sins in this lifetime were future sins as far as Jesus was concerned. None of us lived with him 2,000 years later. All of our sins were future sins. So yes, Jesus paid for every single one of your sins. In Hebrews 10.10, similarly it says, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, the reality is, is there is a penalty for sin. We all instinctually know it. We all get it. We understand. And that's, where, that's why we have a conscience. That's why we feel those things. And we know it too from the Scriptures because Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And the reality is, is God is good. God is righteous. He is holy. And, he is, and God just can't sweep sin under the rug. God can't just say, oh no, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Because by doing so, He would then no longer be holy. He would then no longer be just. And the truth is, we all get this. You know, most of us want to say, why can't we just he sweep everything under the rug? But the truth is, we all get this. Every one of us understands this because it's why we have a legal system. The truth is, is we all believe in justice. We all believe in that justice has to be done. And we all understand that for justice to be done, uh, the penalty has to be paid for the crime. Amen? That's why, do you guys remember Brock Turner some years ago? It might have been a year or two ago who raped that girl. It was at one of the university was at Stanford University. He raped that young girl and he got off with like just a slap on the wrist and everybody was in uproar. Why was everybody in uproar? Because justice was not done. We all understand justice. Nobody thinks it's okay to just sweep stuff under the rug. And God is no different except for he doesn't have the option because by sweeping stuff under the rug... He becomes, he's not being righteous. He's not being just. And as those are intrinsic characters of God, as soon as he is not behaving in those ways, then he is no longer God. Amen? He can't be God otherwise. So how does God make us right and still remain just? That's why he sent his son. Actually, when I think about the mechanics of how we are saved. It's just brilliant to me because God knew we couldn't do it in our own strength and we can't do it at all, but he's a just God so he can't just wipe it under the rug and, and forget about it because if he does, like I said, he's no longer God. So he sends his son to pay the penalty for him. And oh, what an evil God. He sent his son. We just talked about Jesus was God in the flesh. He sent himself. God gave up his own life so that you could live. And by paying the penalty himself, because the penalty has to be paid, we are able to receive that, that, that mercy. We don't get what we deserve. And that's the great thing about 
grace and mercy and the gospel. And it's what you should be sharing with people is that it doesn't matter what you've done. You've never done anything bad enough that would keep God from loving you. That's the good news. And they don't have to do anything to earn it. Even if they sinned three and a half seconds ago, it's okay. That's not going to keep them out. They'll just receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and serve Him. Everything is taken care of. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 <clears throat> says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. You know, first we learned that he, he paid the penalty for us, and now we find out that we're actually forgiven of our sins. And the truth is, is to, this is the only way to be forgiven of your sins. There is no other way. And this is not a unique concept in Scriptures. In Hebrews 8.12, it says, For I will be merciful towards your inequities, and I will remember their sins no more. Psalms 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I love this verse. And I like, it just shows me, like, when you think about this stuff, how God understood how things were going to be. As he inspired somebody to write this, he understood how things were going to be talked about in the future. Because, right, they didn't have a globe back then. They weren't dealing with that stuff. They didn't understand that when we did create a globe, they were going to put the north and south on the poles, but east and west would go around the latitude of the, of the globe. So you think about this. If we were going, if our, our sins were as far as the north is to the south, right? If you keep going north, 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 you hit a pole, and then if you keep going, what are you doing now? You're going south. North touches south. But if you start going east, you never stop going east. If you start going west, you never stop going, you never run into east again. I find that brilliant when, when you look at this stuff. You see, these people had no idea what a globe was going to look like, how that was going to play out. But God's, they could have easily said, our sins are as far as from the north as the south. But it wouldn't have had the impact. That means that our sins are infinitely far from us. And we've been delivered. We've been forgiven. And there's no sin that can't be forgiven save one. And that is not receiving Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. That sin against the Holy Spirit, you want to know why that's the unforgivable sin, that sin against the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is actually testifying to every person in this world that they need a Savior, right? That's the purpose of the, of the, of the, the Holy Spirit. To convince them, to let people know they need a Savior, that they, they, that they need forgiven. And when the Holy Spirit is testifying that to your entire life, if you reject Him, your entire life, that's the one sin that can't be forgiven. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. Every other sin, every other muck up, screw up, mess up that we ever do can be forgiven. And I said muck up, if anybody didn't hear that correctly. I saw a grin out there. Muck. I didn't say anything crazy. <laughs> Praise God. What this means is that it doesn't matter how bad it is, what sin it is. If we repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ, those sins can and will be forgiven. Murder? Yes. Homosexuality? Yes. Adultery? Yes. Fornication? Yes. Abortion? Yes. Lying? Yes. Anger? Yes. Gossip? Yes. Stealing? Yes. And the list goes on. We classify sin as being different. God doesn't. 
It all separates us from God. We've decided that some sins are worse than others, but the smallest sin will separate you from God. However, in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. He remembers them no more, and the slate has been wiped clean. And like I said, even if you mess up after you're saved, even if you screw up, just get back up. That's the only time. The Scripture says the righteous man falls seven times and gets back up seven times. It's the unrighteous man who falls seven times but only gets up six. And in Romans 6, 6-11, it says, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that we, the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has domain over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once and for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus. The next thing that we have to understand as far as the gospel is concerned and the importance, that's probably what I, I believe is the most important part of the gospel, we talked about it briefly a few weeks ago, is that Jesus rose again. I personally believe this is the most important part of the gospel and I believe that this is why we celebrate Easter way more extensively than we celebrate Good Friday. Good Friday was the day that Jesus was died on the cross. Easter was the day that he rose again from the dead. And the reason is, is our old self, the, the one that was bound up in sin, is dead and gone if you were in Christ. He died with Jesus Christ, was buried with him, was crucified with him. That's actually what a picture of baptism is. Baptism is not some supernatural mystical experience that cleanses you from sin. All it is is a representation of your death. You get put under the water, your burial, and then when you're brought out of the water, resurrection with Jesus Christ. You rise again to new life. And when something is dead, it no longer has any influence. It no longer has any rights. Just ask somebody who was made legally dead by a paperwork mishap. If you've ever heard stories, of rich, their, their life is awful until they can get that wrapped up. And it's not just as simple as going, oh, you had it wrong, I'm still alive. It can take years sometimes to fix all that stuff. And in the meantime, they can do almost anything. If you're considered dead legally, you can't get a house, you can't rent a place, you can't get a credit check, you can't get a bank account, you can't get, your, you can't get car insurance, you can't get anything. When something is dead, it no longer has any influence anymore. And the same is true when, when, when we are dead to sin and sin is dead to us. Sin can no longer have influence on us. And that's the good news is that our old man dies with Christ, but we rise up in his place with Christ being made brand new. And for this reason, we have to consider us dead to sin and sin dead to us because we no longer have any interaction or any influence or connection with it completely separated, completely dead. My favorite thing when I think about this, whenever I read this, is like in the old mob movies when the mob boss is like, you're dead to me. The person is still living, but they're no longer allowed to communicate, be in fellowship with the family. They're, they're completely separated. But instead, we are alive to God. In Christ, we are brand new. We are free, and as such, we can finally live our lives in such a way that we are free from sin. In Romans 6, 
16 through 18, it says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is another one of my favorite parts of the gospel is that we are made free from sin. That's the thing is we are made brand new. We rise with Jesus Christ and then we're set free from sin. Because here's the deal. When you're a slave to sin, it has complete control over your life. Has anybody ever felt like that they they don't want to do something, but they can't help it, especially before you got saved? I know the stuff that I was doing, I didn't have any control. I just was doing whatever all the time. And, and actually, I had been deceived in such a way that I thought that was the good thing. It's funny. I look back at my life, and I'm so thankful that I'm not where I was, but I recognize how blinded I was, and I thought that that was a good place to be. And when we're a slave to that sin, it just further sinning and lawlessness comes about it because we're always looking for something to fulfill us, and those things can never fulfill us. However, because of Jesus, we are made slaves of righteousness. We can present ourselves to God as a slave to righteousness, which means that sin no longer dictates what we do. Because that's the thing about being a slave, right? If you think about uh, uh, back in, even in this country, 100 years ago, if you were a slave, you were told by your master everything. You couldn't eat, you couldn't sleep, you couldn't poop without permission from your master. Right? And that's kind of the thing about sin was with us. We had no choice. We couldn't do any of those things without its permission. But now we've become slaves of righteousness. And I never understood what that meant to become a slave to righteousness until, you know, because I was overthinking it. And so you just start, well, what does it mean to be a slave? That means that something has complete control of you. So what's it mean to be a slave to righteousness? That means righteousness dictates everything that you do. It used to be sin that dictated what you did, but now it's righteousness that dictates what you did. Sin used to make you go and do sinful things. Righteousness makes you do righteous things amen you begin to you have the the ability to live a righteous life because we've been set free from sin and are now slaves to righteousness and we also have to understand with the gospel that it's a free gift as well it's funny i keep going through this i'm like another one of my my best parts favorite parts of the gospel the whole thing apparently is my favorite Verse 23 in the book of Romans chapter 6 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Salvation cannot be earned. That's all there is to it. We can't live a good enough life. We can't do all the right things. It is a, a free gift. And it's, once again, not a unique concept in Scripture. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And unfortunately, this right here is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for, I think, people to really grab a hold of the gospel in their lives because it's just too simple. It's too easy. We all think that, no, we have to do something. We have to, to do something to earn it. There's got to be something we can do for God, something that we have to do to make it right. But the truth is there's nothing you can do, and you don't have to do it. Just receive it as a free gift. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's a free gift. But for some reason, we all think that we have to do something to earn it, to work for it, to make amends. 
And I think as we're sharing the Gospels with, with others, one, we have to get a hold of this personally, but two, as we're sharing with others, is to be able to, to, to let them know that. I mean, those are the, the key things. See, the problem is, is we're, we're trained in life, and rightly so, that if it's good to be true, it probably is, right? You know, especially with the, the, the advent of the internet, we see that all the time. You're getting stuff in your email that uh, some Nigerian prince just received an inheritance, and uh, he wants to give most of it to you. You just have to send a little bit back to him. You're like, this sounds like a great deal. I'm going to make a lot of money. But if it's too good to be true, it probably is. We've all been taught that our whole lives, and it's a good thing. But in this one case, it's just good. Not too good to be true. God has made provision for every single person on this earth to spend eternity in heaven as a child of God with him. God is not sending anybody to hell because the provision's been made to receive it for free, to accept that gift. They don't have to do anything to earn it. They don't have to do... There's, there's not enough little old ladies you can help cross the street to make yourself right with God. Just receive it. And that's where we're at with the, with the gospel today as we look about what is the gospel. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died for our sins, which paid the penalty for them, and as a result, we have forgiveness. And then he rose again from the dead, and as a result, we have a brand new life inside of us. The old person is dead and gone. You're made brand spanking new. It's not a fresh cone of paint. It's not just a rebuild of the motor. It is brand new off the lot. You're new. You're not who you used to be. And then finally, remember, as you're sharing this with others, that this is a gift. It's free. Amen? So we're going to go ahead and end there for today. I want you to remember that as we go through these next few weeks, the whole point of them is to build up your understanding of what the gospel is, how to share it, why we share it, why it's important. So not a bad idea to take notes so you know where this stuff is. So if you ever do need to show somebody a scripture, this is what it says. You have reference to that. Because the reality is, is that, man, if, if we're not willing to share the gospel, what kind of people do we have to be? If we really believe that without it, they're not going to make it. Amen? Let's go ahead and bow our head.